Welcome to the We Love Arabian Horses podcast, where every week we bring you an interview from someone who loves these horses, from historians and breeders to insiders and professionals, all brought to you by those who love the Arabian horse. Thanks for listening. This is Paul Costa with the We Love Arabian Horses podcast, and we're thrilled today to have Tim Shea with us. Tim, good morning. How are you, Paul? Great to be with you this morning. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. And we've got a lot to talk about today, Tim. And we start every podcast with how you first found the Arabian horse when you were a child, or how did that happen for you? You know, uh, when I was about 17, I, I got my first horse, a, a grade-type horse. I think he was like a thoroughbred, quarter-horse, saddlebred, cross a little bit of everything. And shortly after that, uh, my father, we lived in Detroit, and my father saw an ad for the Michigan All-Arabian Horse Show that was being held at the Michigan State Fairgrounds, which was just about 15, 20-minute drive from our house. And he said, well, let's just go down and check it out. And I will never forget, you know, you have those certain moments in your life there that are just frozen in time. Yep. And I'll never forget walking in from the parking lot and seeing those Arabian horses warming up for the class before they went in the Coliseum to show. Yeah. And back then, you know, uh, there were a lot of Arabians that were gray, and, and that's my memory of, of seeing all those beautiful gray, and a lot of them were dappled. Uh, I think a lot of the, back then, a lot of those were raffles breeding, and, and sure. they had they had those white manes and tails and, and it just struck me, and uh, I had never seen anything so beautiful in my life. And three months later, I owned my—I had sold that grade horse and bought my first Arabian, a 16-year-old uh, Snow White gelding, and, and that's oh, wow. what started it all. Yep. So when you yeah. were got that gelding, did you start showing, or did were you still kind of learning? Where what was your no. development? I, I was just trying to hang on because he would routinely flip his nose up in the air and run off you know <laughs> i was it was uh it was the it was uh he was a lot more experienced than i was and, and not in a good way so i had him for about a year and then uh my dad and i went down to the ohio already in the buckeye show and we met some people and i i bought another gelding that had been shown quite a bit he was uh i think he was Gloucester breeding and uh, I think he was started by a horse by the name of Gamil Huzan. But anyway, he was a little chestnut horse with a blaze and white markings. And he'd been shown quite a lot. And uh, back then, you know, uh, horses were more versatile in that era. So I'm talking, I'm talking about 1968 right in there. Sure. And he knew, a little, he, he knew how to do a little bit of everything. I mean, I showed him in Western Pleasure, English. Uh, a friend of mine and I took him to the Wisconsin All Arab, and she showed him in an English trail class where she jumped a little bit, because huh. because he would jump too, and and I and I showed him, I showed him in park classes. I mean everything, and and that was that was a lot of fun, and and that was you know at that time I, I was interested in all disciplines. You know, my career went in another direction with the saddle seat thing, but uh, but I was interested in. In, in in all disciplines, and that's one of the reasons I was so attracted to Arabians was because I thought uh, that they were the only breed that looked authentic as a saddle seed horse and a western horse. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I saw other breeds 
try to do that. But to me, they couldn't pull it off like Arabians could, you know. To me, Arabians, uh, in my mind then, and still uh, in my mind, are the horse that that can, you know, look the part doing just about anything. So, yeah. Well, I think that's a good point, and it's not one I've really heard stated that way. You know, you've got the English breeds and the ones that are more upright, and they can't really do Western very well, and the ones that are, you know, so they're, the Raven kind of fits right in the middle, it seems. Yeah, they do. They're they're adaptable. And, and they well, learn, I think you – go on. Well, well they learn – uh, how to do things that you know they they get with the program they they learn the training and uh and because they're a fancy horse and and you know they're a somewhat upright horse but they can go a lot of different ways you know in right. the carriage yeah well and you also point out another thing which we've talked about on the podcast before is you know back then when you're talking and we we all grew up in that era a lot of us grew up in that era um, you know, I was showing as a kid in the 70s, and we showed in every single class there was, trail, English, Western, costume, right? And, yeah. and the, the versatile horse has now really become the versatile breed because we've got so many disciplines now where everyone's so specialized. It's, you just can't have an English horse that's built and bred to be upright and then suddenly turn into a Western horse. So I think that the specialization right. has happened over the years. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true, and, and I wonder, you know, Sometimes if we're the victim of it, I mean, you know, well, there's pluses and minuses to everything. And, uh, you know, when I, when I see, uh, uh, the Arabian breed doing saddle seat, they're doing it, you know, way better than they ever did. And the same with Western. Yep. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think about those old times and, and think all the, all the good things that came out of it. Well, I think of it now as the versatile breed instead of the versatile horse. And and some yeah. horses yeah. are still versatile, but some of these high-powered English horses or phenomenal Western or hunters, they're they're really built for that discipline because that's how they were bred. They were bred to be that, which is great. Well, let's yeah. go back to your – so once you went from having this first horse and then the second horse, what kind of happened next? Did you start a training career very quickly, or what was your next few years? Well, so, yeah, so, I mean, I was uh, – you know, I was going, to, I had graduated from high school, I was in college, and I could not see myself in the business world. I was enamored with the horses and the horse business. To me, it, it looked like a very romantic, exciting uh, lifestyle. And uh, and so some friends of mine had a horse in training with Bob Hart Sr. down in Ohio. And I had seen him show, and he was you know, he was my absolute hero. Uh, he had such a quiet dignity and just was a just a class, class individual. And so I got a job one summer grooming for, for Bob and his son, Bobby. And uh, through them, I met Bill Bull. So at that time, that was when uh, Bob Hart Sr. went to work for Wayne Newton. So so he he had moved on from his uh, public training stable in Ohio, and I went to work out at Sir William Farm under Bill Bull. He was the trainer there. Yep. And that was in that was in Eastern New York, and uh, they had been importing horses from Poland. Um, Mr. Leon Rubin was the owner, and he was importing Polish hams, and the the company Animex that handled the uh, uh, ham 
business also handled the Arabian horse business. Well, wow. so uh, so I spent three years there, and I was a city kid. I knew how to ride a horse, but I knew nothing else. So I went there. I learned how to break horses to ride, to drive. I learned how to handle breeding. Learned how to fold out mares, how to give injections, how to you know drive a tractor and a spreader, how to drive a horse van. I learned everything about the horse business. And Bill was, uh, he was, a, I mean, he's just a fantastic person. Yep. And very, very, if, if, if you know him, you know what a class person he is and what a, a kind. Well, he, he, was, he was very, uh, he had a lot of patience with, with me at that time. Yeah. <laughs> so I spent three years there, and then I worked for a small farm in New York or in uh, North Carolina for about a year. Uh, Enniswood Farm. They had a really nice horse that Ibn Silver Ghost, a Racine Crabbit bred horse. And oh, after I left, he became national champion pleasure driving with Jim Fisher. Wow! But so I spent about a year there, and then uh, I came back to Michigan and started a public stable in St. Clair County, where I still am today. And that was in 1975. Oh my gosh! You're in the exact same place. Yes, um, that's we've phenomenal. Had, yeah, we've had great longevity. So I'm in my third facility in that county. I, I started out at my wife Marty's farm, and I was there about two or three years. And then I went to a like a big uh, public boarding stable. And uh, in those years, I had MS Santana, and yep. uh, he was he was of course the only Bosque son that became national champion halter horse. Ray Lacroix uh, subsequently showed him to that title. But wow. we we stood that horse there, and I showed him in his early halter career uh, to uh, Buckeye champion Halter Stallion. That's uh, fantastic. And, and Ken and Donna Top, they were very good and influential clients to me at that time. So I spent five years there, and then in the fall of 82, we built the barn that we're in right now, moved in in January of 83. So this year we've been working horses on that farm and training out of that barn for 40 years. That's amazing. Well, you were about, what, 25, 28 or so when you opened this facility we're talking about now? Yeah. So, well, when I moved back to Michigan in 75, uh, yeah, I was 25 years old. Okay. So over the years, you know, you've you've kind of got focused on English – and the yes. the English divisions, and tell us a little yes. about how did that happen? Why? Because that's kind of unusual at that time for someone to be so focused on one particular discipline. Well, you know, back then, I you know, a lot of the horse shows they were not all Arabian shows; they were all breed shows. And I was very enamored with the other breeds, you know, the, the Morgans and the Saddlebreds and the Ponies, and I loved the excitement of. The, preparation to go in the ring the carriage of the horses the uh the fact that it's all it's got to be you know uh very intense it's got to be wow and it's got to happen right now and that whole entourage puts that horse into the arena and you see those horses swell up and go through the chute and hit that gate and that whole thing uh you know was very very beautiful and exciting to me and and that and that's kind of how I, I went that route. Also, uh, you know, I mentioned that Bob Hart was one of my heroes, and that was his. You know, he was the saddle seat guy in the Midwest, and he showed most of the early national champion park horses. Yep. And then in the early 
early 80s. I think 80, I'm thinking, no, 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 uh, 71, I went to my first, well, I went to my first Nationals with Bob and Bobby. Wow. And I, and I first saw the LaCroix family, and they just blew me away. Their professionalism, the quality of their horses, the whole, the whole thing they did. And so, you know, when I opened my stable in the 70s, I was, I was originally training English and Western, but I'd seen another guy out there, Bob Battaglia from Chicago, and another class guy that had a class operation, and he was just a saddle seat. And I thought, you know, I, and at that time I wasn't that good. I didn't have that big a reputation, but I thought, you know what, I'm just going to, say that that's my expertise and specialize in it, in it and that's what I'm going to do and it worked out now back then I was still showing a lot of halter horses yep but uh but uh uh you know that and in retrospect that was a great path for me to follow and about 1979 or 80 a really special horse came into my life a horse park horse by the name of Orange Adagio yeah yeah and and I was reserved at the Canadian Nationals. To, I think Gene won it on Scarlet Lace. A year later, Gene came and bought that horse for me. And uh, in the course of our negotiations, he mentioned to me, he said, you know, he said, uh, he said, I feel bad. He said, you know, you're losing this great horse and all you're making is 10%. And I see the opportunity and I said to him, I said, you know, Gene, the biggest regret I have in my life right now is that I never worked for you guys. I said, could I come out and, and hang out? And he said, sure, you know, come right ahead. So in those years from 81 to 85, I would go out to Lasma for a month, like from the middle of November to the middle of December. And I would spend, at that time, Gene was not doing much training. He was doing all business work, but Raymond was training. And I was, I hung on Raymond's, elbow for every single day <laughs> you know his days were at least 12 hour days and I so I did that for a month and from 81 to 85 I went from a guy that could win a regional championship to a guy that could win a national championship that's amazing and in, in 85 I uh went 84 and it was funny because you know for 15 years I was just kind of a journeyman you know I was a guy that could do all right. I, my amateurs were getting in the top 10. I was winning regional championships, but I just couldn't get in the top 10. And I don't know how many times I was 11th, but you know, back then the classes were 60, 70, 80 horses. It was, yep. you know, there weren't as many divisions and it was very difficult. So in 84, um, my wife, Marty said, you know, we're going to, we're, we're, we're going to go, we're going to push our clients to go out and buy some nice horses. So we bought uh, J.K. Jedi and paid quite a bit of money for him at the time as a gelding. And uh, E.W. Ultima that uh, uh, we bought from Lasma. It was a Sims bred mare. And so then I went to Canadian Nationals that year in 85, and I win the English with Jedi. I win the park with Ultima. And I win the pleasure driving with Barnaby B., who was a Michigan bred horse starred by Barnaby Abaskson. And that was... That one show was a turning point in my life. And then later on at U.S. Nationals, uh, Ultima, she had a little uh, lameness problem. We couldn't show her, but I won the English with Jedi. 
and I won the driving with Barnaby B. And so, yeah, that from 81 to 85, uh, you know, thankfully for my push there from LaCroix, my career made a big jump. That's amazing. Well, I think a lot of people, you know, they get to that kind of the top of the second tier pack kind of, and they're they're trying to break into that top ten and champion and reserve, and it's it's a huge leap sometimes, especially when those classes had 60 and 70 of them in it, like you said. Yeah, and, you know, for me, it was I had done my homework. I'd had experience showing a lot of horses, and so when those real good horses came into my care, I was ready for them. Were, were over those years that you showed English and won so many um, national championships, which of those horses were kind of the extra special ones to you? Any any in particular? Well, of course, Jedi. You know, he was he was special because you know we won the English at U.S. and Canada, and he was a breakthrough horse for me. And then we came back the next year and won the amateur class uh, with uh, Dave Owens, the owner. But uh, the next big time horse that came to me and you know probably my all-time favorite horse was Huckleberry Berry. Yeah. And and that came to me again because you know I've said you know people ask well you know why did you become so successful in your life and in your business? And I and, and in the horse business I always say the right horses will bring you the right people and the right people will bring you the right horses. So after I started, you know, in 85, I had, uh, you know, break, broken through and done real well. So Sheila Varian spotted me. So uh, at that time, uh, her boyfriend, it was thinking the fall of 87, he had a bad accident on a horse. And uh, she couldn't uh, stay at her ranch to work her horses. So she hired me that year to school horses at Scottsdale for her. And it was Scottsdale and the Star World show were the same uh yep. that same time. So anyways, after the show she sent me Bay Aperitif and another gelding, uh Baryansk, I think was his name, and uh I think Huckster at that time. So shortly after that, she had a client that had uh had had purchased Huckleberry Berry from her. And that horse was out in New Jersey at the time. So uh, she advised that client to send Huckleberry to me. And we won the uh, national champion English in 89. We reserve in 90 and get it won in 91 again. Uh, and I, I think before that, in 1988, we won the national formal driving. Sheila was a huge life-changing part of our life because that was our whole you know, uh, that was the direction our breeding program was going to go in. And it, it's so interesting how this all happened. Because at that time, when the raving business was really hot and really going strong, and of course, the number one stallion was and still is in my mind, was a Basque. Everybody thought that the way the, uh, that the breeding should go and, the, and that the industry would go would be Basque on pure Polish mares. And that's really not the way it worked out. There were a lot of boss sons that had a lot of influence, but none. there was no boss son that really took over. So all those boss daughters were bred to uh, primarily uh, pure Polish stallions, and there was some success. But there was not anywhere near the success when those boss daughters were bred to Huckleberry Bay. 
And Sheila went out and she bought and leased 20 Bosque daughters. And that, and that, you know, that became Huckleberry Berry, a fire bay, who became the most successful uh, yeah. rated sire of all time and, and changed our life. And not only the saddle seat division, but the western division and a large part of the halter division. I mean, if you look at the halter world, there's very few halter horses that don't have Sheila's program in there somewhere through Bay, mm-hmm. through Bale Bay, uh, subsequently Bayshaw, uh, you know, Huckleberry Bay, Desperado, Fame, Barbary, all those horses. So, again, I got in with the right breeder. In retrospect, and at the time, in the early 80s, I think Sheila was considered maybe the top of the middle tier, but she wasn't considered in that top tier. But, you know, history has a way of changing things as it goes. And I think in retrospect, she was the absolute top breeder and uh, and just a fantastic horsewoman. And, and we were so lucky to uh, become part of her life and, and her journey. Well, and you're, you're, it's interesting to point out the Bosque, Berry, and Cross was the cross that actually ended up producing so many winners and even winners that are still um, that lineage is producing today. It, it, it totally dominates. I mean, in the saddle seat world, you'll, it's hard-pressed to find a horse that doesn't have a fire bay in, in its pedigree. Mm-hmm. And, and, and farther back, most of the horses have six to ten crosses to Bosque in their pedigree. But interestingly, uh, if you look at the Western world in Sundance, Kid, he was a game changer, uh, sired by Desperado. Uh, and Desperado was a Western horse. But Desperado was sired by Huckleberry Bay, who was definitely a saddle seat horse. So mm. you, can take, you can take that one individual that is uh, a little different than his pedigree uh, Sheila used to talk about, you know, those horses have a look unto themselves. Right. And you can go in a different direction, you know. So so here you have uh, a, an English horse, Huckleberry Bay, and his blood dominates not only the saddle seat, but the Western world. So, yeah. That's amazing. Well, talk a little bit about you also shifted your career a little bit as you built your breeding programs and with the Leningers and others you were – you were breeding and producing horses, but you slowed down your training careers later in life, and, and now you've been breeding these amazing horses for, what, I mean, 20 years or more. Yeah, well, so that that brings up, you know, the other, probably the most influential people in our lives, Dave and Gail Linegar, and, and they were, we were recommended to them from, from Sheila Varian. So they came to us in 1988. Dave had bought his first three or four Arabian mares at Scottsdale auctions and Sheila and one of the mares uh, flames lullaby uh, recommended us and he sent us that filly. Well, later on that year we had a fire bay in training. Uh, Sheila had sent him out there for us to train. We got him in his late three-year-old year in December. So he'd been there not quite a year. And David had become enthused and bought several mares. Uh, at that time, he had he had sent one of his other first purchases, uh, Flames Lullaby, to Gordon Potts, and he had some horses with Don DeLongre out in California. But anyway, a fire bay was there with us, and that fall he purchased him. And uh, you know that was uh, 
that was a total game changer for us and the whole industry. Yeah. And, you know, a fire bay, he he ended up to be a top 10 uh, park horse, and he had won the English Pleasure Championship at Buckeye. But he was a much stronger breeding horse than he was a show horse. He was a his dam produced several great horses. She'd been bred to Bale Bay and then Huckleberry Bay. She was, of course, a boss daughter. And uh, anyways, she had produced several top ten horses, English, Halter, and the Fire Bay. Uh, you know, when we started breeding him, his foals were just absolute knockouts. And so Dave bought a – at one time, Dave had about 80 mares, you know, between the Long Prairie in California, Gordon, and, uh, and ourselves. And then in about 2000, everything was uh, consolidated at our farm. And uh, as the years went by, we kept culling, culling mares and, uh, you know, figuring out which lines really worked. And uh, interestingly, when he first got into business, Don uh, DeLongpre had Barbary and he had Edder. And so at one time, I think, Dave owned maybe eight Barbary daughters, eight or ten, and about eight or ten Etter daughters. And our best line, mare line today, comes through uh, a Barbary daughter who's out of an Etter daughter, a mare by the name of Baccarat. Mm-hmm. And she was the dam of Brandy, a fire, bred to a fire by Brandy, a fire, and Bonita, a fire, who's the dam of Inception. So, you know, we've had other good mare lines, but those original uh, Barbary Etter crosses have turned out to be our strongest, uh, our strongest horses. And, Interesting. Uh, and, and today, what is what do you think is the best cross with the Farbay V? Well, I think the Chief Justice mares work very well. Mm-hmm. I think the Barbary mares work very well. I thought, uh, you know, one of the first, the first two that were shown by Farbay were one out of Flames Lullaby, the mare, the original mare that David sent us, and a mare. Uh, that was sired by Almar Canadius and uh, uh, a mare by the name of Canadette. And uh, and I showed that mare to national champion Junior English. Those were the first two that went to the nationals, and they were both national champions. And that was the beginning of it. And, you know, the thing was, his foals, they came out and they had beautiful markings. They had gorgeous necks. And they trained really. They had a lot of athletic ability, and they trained really well. And one of the things that made it so successful, because they were spread out all over the country, uh, is so many different horsemen and horsewomen got along with them. You know, uh, they were horses that uh, a lot of it, that uh, a lot of different training styles, uh, you know, proved to be successful. Worked well, yeah. So, so that was you know a big part of it. And and the other thing. Um, you know, back in the 70s, I think the fire bay kind of changed the training style. And I think training has really evolved, and I think it's become much better yep. for, a lot of different, for a lot of different reasons. But one, one of the reasons is back in the 70s and the 80s, and especially when, you know, uh, horses were knocked out for one mistake. Uh, but horses, I thought, you know, were overschooled and picked on a lot. And the Huckleberry Bay horses and the Fire Bay horses, they would accept discipline, but they didn't want to be picked on. So I thought, you know, that line of breeding taught trainers how to train and, you know, make their point and get in and get out. 
and, and leave the horses alone because they were so much better if you did that. Sure. And, 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 and I think that the whole industry has, has uh, benefited from that mindset. So. No, I think you're right, and I think that we hear from other – we had Bataglia on the podcast a few months ago, and he just mentioned that, you know, the, the, the stepping up of the quality of training in the business, it's like at an all-time high, and the quality of these horses that are showing at the national championships, are, they're, they're all good. I mean, you rarely see one yeah. that's not just phenomenal. That, that's right. That's right. I, I, I watch so many classes at nationals, and I see horses that don't make top ten that I think, you know, on another day, they're they're going to be knocking on the door to win it. And I see so many horses that, you know, in, in another era would have been the national champion. So Right. Well, I've judged it several times, and I'm telling you what, you only put 11 numbers down on your card, and in some of those classes, there's 19 numbers you're trying to stuff into 11 slots. It's not easy. Exactly. Oh, I sit there. You know, Paul, I sit there and watch it, and I think, thank God I don't have to tie this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's a, that's, I'm sure it's a lot of fun, but it's a, it's got to be a lot of pressure, and it's a major responsibility. Well, it is, and, you know, those English classes, they move so fast, and, and there's just so much commotion. It's just it's exhilarating to judge it, but you're, you're, you're really judging this, this super high level of horses, and every single one of them is, like, top tenable. But you only got yeah. ten you can pick, right? It's just it's amazing. Yeah. So t- talking about English, though, especially since that's been your area of focus, do you have any observations of English other than what we've just talked about that you'd like to add? Well, uh, trying to think here. Uh, you know, I think in general. So I, I may sound like an old guy from a different era, but in the country classes. I, I think I would like to see the horses cantering a little old-fashioned. You know, yep. when I first got in the business, uh, if you had that uh, teacup canter, you know, that old-fashioned, yep. uh, you know, like you could hold a teacup in your hand and not spill a drop. Uh, and and Bob and, and Gene at that time, you know, they all cantered their horses like that, real slow, very collected, very rated. I think for the country division, I think if, if somebody would do that, they would stand out. Because I, I think, you know, it, it, the country classes are a little bit too aggressive for, for my taste. Yeah. And I think a lot of it, you know, of course, and now there's more amateur classes than anything. I think a lot of amateurs get into the trap of thinking if they pass the horse in front of them, they're beating that horse. Right. And and they hit the ring too strong, and then they get stronger, and then they get too strung out, and then, you know, they've lost the essence of the class. And so the the other thing is, I think that in the English classes, I think there should be more emphasis put on form. I see in the in the English classes, I see, in my mind, too much emphasis put on motion, yep. and less emphasis put on frame, softness. I like where it's gone from an expression standpoint, and I like to think I was one of the people that took it in that direction because, you know, I've always been enamored with horses that, that are beautiful in the ring, that are no, not overschooled, that uh, use their ears, that have a lot of bloom, have a lot of presence. But I think sometimes in the English 
classes that motion is put over form, you know, a horse with a really uh, beautiful head carriage. And, of course, if you have beautiful head carriage, you're going to have a nice mouth. Right. And so I would kind of reel things in a little bit that way. I see a lot of horses in the country class that I think should be shown English, and I see a lot of horses in the English class that I think should be shown in the park horse division. Yeah. So that's that's kind of my take on it. Well, and I think then, and it's kind of a question is, you know, we I think the breed needs to have a little more distinction between what is country and what is English, and right now it's a little bit mumble jumble, and then it leaves people confused um, as to the winners. Do you have any observations on what would help the country class be a little bit more country and the English be a little more English and park still being separated from that? Well, I just go over the things that I've just said, but in the country class, if a really soft mouth was more plussed and horses weren't overridden, soft mouths, I think, uh, I think are a big plus. Absolutely. I, I heard. I, I heard one thing that makes it hard, and I realize it makes it difficult. And I heard Don Burke say this years ago. He said, "All other things being equal, the best mover wins." And so, when you're sitting there, and especially you know when you're sitting there at nationals, and you're watching, you know, a class of twenty top country horses, and you see those horses that are really loose and oily movers. Many most of the time they're they're moving a little bit higher, you know. And I was one of the guys that that got the country division in. Uh, you know, I was active in the Arabian Professional Horsemen's Association, and uh, and we and I was one of those people that that started the division. And we really started it for horses that had an English uh, silhouette, but didn't have the high motion. And so what changed is the shoeing changed. And uh, so, you know, the horses are going with a little more shoe. They've got a little more weight, so they're going a little higher now. Right. And so I really feel for the judges because I think the judges are criticized, but it's it's a hard position to be in because if you, a lot of times you'll see uh, in a country class a horse that's a high mover, but he's also fluid and he's soft, and because he's not hurrying, his mouth is 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 nice, and his overall frame is uh, you know very very unhurried and a real relaxed you know beautiful style. Balance, so, yeah. Yes, it becomes it becomes very difficult. Well, one thing I think that you commented on, and just to point this out a little more, is I think that especially in the amateur classes in the country, they tend to override them. So they end yes. up with a mess, and it really would be so much better if they would just slow down. And some horses have a bigger stride. You're not necessarily going to be able to keep up with that bigger horse, and yet your horse looks better at this speed than that one looks better at that speed. It's hard for people yeah. to grasp that. That's right. And and I want to add one other thing, and, and, I, and I'm kind of the culprit because I was one of the first ones that started it because, uh, you know, all these years I've gone to – the major saddlebred shows, and I, you know, I watched when they would call for the lineup. You know, the best horses would make a couple extra passes, and so I started that back in about '85 in the Arabian world, and it caught on quickly. And but to me, it's it got way too far, and to me, 
you know, the only time you should make, you know, too many extra passes is if you're in the hunt. Yep. And so many people, not they're not in the hunt. They, they think, well, they haven't been seen. I think that's why they keep going. But then they just keep going around and around till their horse is completely evaporated, you know. Right. And and so they and I see so many times, you know, you judges, you, you just got to turn away because a lot of times these exhibitors think that they're plussing their horse and their horse is falling apart. And you've watched that horse through the class and you think, man, you know, I really liked him, but I don't want to watch him anymore because he's disintegrating. And, you know, and so uh, that's the other thing I think, you know, when they call for the lineup, you know, make another pass and then get in the lineup. It just goes on and on. And as a spectator, you're just seeing those horses fall apart, and that's not what you want to see. Well, and some of them would be better in the lineup. They were already first, and now they're starting to go down the scale if they keep making it worse, right? At that point, the horse is tired and ready to be done, right? It, exactly. I think, you know, you know, every once in a while, you know, I don't show anymore, but I'm called on to help people on the rail. And if they've had a good class, the first thing I tell them is get in the middle now, you know. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, Tim, we really enjoy chatting with you, and I know we'll have you back on the podcast again. Is there any last comments you'd like to share with um, the folks that listen to our podcast? Well, I'd, I'd just like to say, uh, you know, what a great life I've had. I'm so fortunate with all the fantastic people that have come into my life, the, the Linegers, Bill Bowl, the LaCroix, the Hearts, Sheila Berrien, and all the trainers I've worked with, of course, Joel Kiesner. The Kiesners have just done a fantastic job with our horses. You know, there's so many others, Johnny Ryan, uh, Mary Trowbridge. I'm I'm scared now that I'm Well, I know, but you, it's, a lo- it's a good list, and it's a long list of really notable people in our industry. Yeah, yeah. I've been so fortunate. I've had a great life. I've enjoyed every minute of it. There's not one day that I'm that I'm looking at the clock. It's always, oh my God, is it five o'clock already? Because <laughs> even at my age, I still have so much fun training horses and and bringing these young horses up. And it's, uh, I have no regrets. Well, we really appreciate your time, and you're really a historian in our breed now, and you're producing new babies and horses for the future. We really appreciate everything that you and Marty have done to encourage and support the breed. Thank you so much. Well, I thank you, Paul, and I really appreciate everything you're doing. This is Austin, director of the We Love Arabian Horses podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, make sure that you click subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. Comments, questions, guest ideas, feel free to send me an email at austin at welovearabianhorses.com. Or just use the Contact Us button on our website at welovearabianhorses.com. Thanks for listening.